Hello and welcome to Historical True Crime, the podcast where we take a look back at history's darkest crimes and criminals. I'm your host, Lizzie, and today is episode 69. Today we're embarking on a journey into one of the most chilling and perplexing chapters in British criminal history, the Moors murders. In the midst of Northern England's rugged landscapes and rolling hills, a string of horrifying murders in the 1960s stunned the country and permanently altered the collective consciousness of the British people. The culprits, Ian Brady and Myra Hindley, will go down in history as the faces of evil, their depravity forever associated. The Moors murders take place in Britain during the turbulent and socially transformative post-war era. A darkness, however, lingered in the shadows amidst the optimism of the swaying 60s, and it would soon be exposed in the most horrible of ways. It all started off innocently enough, with random meetings and seemingly normal lives colliding in the most diabolical of ways. Hindley was the ideal match for Brady, a disturbed young man with a frightening mind and a preoccupation with violence. She was an ordinary-looking girl, but her experience contradicted her extreme immorality. Together, they'd embark on a spree of abduction, torture, and murder that would claim the lives of five innocent children. Their bodies callously disposed of on the desolate moors that stretched across the Lancashire landscape, However, the cold, deliberate method in which the murders were committed is just as horrifying as the actual savagery of the Moore's murders. Even the most seasoned investigators would be shocked by Brady and Hindley's precise preparation and complete lack of regret. They left a path of destruction in their wake that would plague the victims' families forever. So come along with me as we explore the dark corners of Ian Brady and Myra Hindley's minds, in an effort to solve the mysteries that still elude us regarding the Moors' murders. This is a tale of sorrow, loss, and the never-ending pursuit of justice in the face of unfathomable evil. Ian Brady was born Ian Duncan Stewart on January 2, 1938, in Glasgow, Scotland. Margaret Peggy Stewart, his mother, stated that his father was a correspondent for a newspaper in Glasgow, but would pass away around three months prior to Ian's birth. Margaret attempted to raise Brady on her own, but she had little help, and after only a few months, would give Brady over to Mary and Josh Sloan. Brady was voluntarily adopted by the couple, who already had four biological children, and it was at this point that he adopted their last name. Brady was around nine years old when the Sloan family would relocate, Peggy would continue to see Brady during his early childhood years, but did so less as he grew up. He was accused of torturing animals by a number of authors who have written about his history, but Brady himself always refuted these claims. But it's alleged that Brady boasted, for instance, of having killed his first cat at the age of 10. He also reportedly went on to stone dogs, burn another cat alive, and would chop off the heads of rabbits. Brady would be admitted to Shawlands Academy, where he would continue to act out. He would go to juvenile court on a charge of housebreaking, which is defined as breaking into a building without causing any additional damage. Brady would leave the academy at the age of 15 to work as a T-boy at a shipyard for around nine months, before leaving that job to work as a messenger for a butcher. Evelyn Grant was his girlfriend during this time, until their romance came to an end after Brady threatened her with a knife, because she was dancing with another boy. 
Brady would eventually end up back in court on nine additional charges and would be placed on a probation that required him to live with his mother, Peggy. At this point, Peggy had relocated to Manchester and wed a man named Patrick Brady, an Irish fruit dealer. He got Brady his first job as a fruit porter. And it's also during this time that Ian Sloan would become Ian Brady. Within a year, Brady was caught stealing and sent to prison for three months. But because at this point he was still under 18, he was sentenced to two years in a detention center for training. And after being released on November 14, 1957, Brady went back to Manchester, where he took a laboring job that he detested. But determined to improve himself, he would go to the public library in his neighborhood and pick up some bookkeeping training manuals. He astonished his mother by spending hours studying in his room by himself. Brady would begin to work as a clerk at Millward's, a wholesale chemical distribution company in January of 1959. His colleagues called him quiet, reliable, and irritable. Brady was also known to read a great deal of literature, some of which detailed the horrors committed by the Nazis, a topic he was oddly fascinated with. Myra was the first child of Nellie and Bob Hindley, born on July 23, 1942, in an industrial area of Manchester. For the first three years of Myra's life, her mother raised her alone, while her father was serving in a parachute unit. While Hetty went to work as a machinist, Myra was taken care of by her mother, Ellen Mayberry, who shared their home. They would purchase their own house next to Hetty's mother when Bob came back and Bob would struggle to reintegrate into civilian life and would frequently spend his free time in the neighborhood bar. Bob and Hetty, who both worked full-time, concluded that the strain would be too much after their second child, Maureen, was born in August of 1946, so they sent Myra to live with her grandmother. Myra's father had a reputation for being a harsh man from his time spent in the army, and he wanted his daughter to have that same strength, so he instilled in her the ability to fight and to stand up for herself. One story from her childhood was that an eight-year-old boy from the neighborhood would scrape Hindley's cheeks, causing blood to flow. She began to cry and would flee back to her father, who threatened to hit her if she didn't fight back. Hindley would track down the child and punch him several times to knock him down. Another pivotal moment in Hindley's childhood happened when she was 15 years old, and her best friend at the time, 13-year-old Michael Higgins, invited her to go swimming in a nearby abandoned reservoir in June of 1957. She said no because she already had plans with another friend, and unfortunately Michael would drown that day. Hindley would blame herself for his death because she was a good swimmer and convinced herself if she was there, she could have saved him. Her conversion to Roman Catholicism, Michael's religion, and the decline in her academic performance were all manifestations of her grief. She would quit school soon after Michael passed away. Myra began to work as a junior clerk at the electrical engineering company Lawrence Scott and Electrometers. She was a lot like other teenage girls in this period. She would occasionally smoke a cigarette, flirt with boys, attend dances and cafes, and listen to rock and roll. When she was 17, she became engaged to Ronnie Sinclair, a local boy who worked as a tea blender at the local co-op. But she'd begin to doubt this was the kind of life that she actually wanted to lead, as she would approach her impending marriage. She began to wish for something more. So she started filling out Army and Navy entrance forms, but would never actually go through with submitting them. She briefly considered being a nanny in America, but again never went through with it. 
She left for London in an attempt to find employment, but that plan also failed. It would take her two more years to finally experience anything fresh or interesting. But then Myra began to work as a typist at Millward's, and in January of 1961, she'd meet Ian Brady. According to Steele for Crime Library, their initial meeting, according to Myra, marked the start of an immediate and fatal attraction. Brady was portrayed as some by gloomy and moody, but Hindley found him to be quiet and distant, qualities she considered enigmatic, worldly, and a sign of intelligence. Compared to the other boys she had known, he was unique. She would write in her diary every night about how she longed for Brady, but she would swing from loving him to hating him. Brady himself remained uninterested for almost a full year. Finally, on December 22nd, Brady would ask Hinley out for their first date to go to the movies. Hinley remembers the movie as King of Kings, but several other sources say the movie they saw was Judgment at Nuremberg. Their dates would usually consist of going to the movies, typically something X-rated, and then returning to Hinley's place to drink German wine. Brady began to hand her reading material, and during their lunch breaks at work, the two would read aloud passages from descriptions of the horrors committed by the Nazis. Hinley also started to bleach her hair blonde and put on red lipstick in an attempt to conform to the standard of Aryan perfection. But all wasn't quite as it seemed, because Hinley did share her worries about certain parts of Brady's character in a letter to her childhood friend. In addition to talking about how he drugged her, she talked about her obsession with him. But she'd replied to this friend only a few months later, asking that the original letter be destroyed. Other than going to the movies, Hinley and Brady had another activity they liked to do together. And even though Hinley didn't have a driver's license, she would frequently rent a van and drive places with Brady while they plotted out bank robberies together. These would remain only plans, nothing more. Hinley would then make friends with George Clithrow, the Cheadle Rifle Club president, and would visit two nearby shooting ranges multiple times. George made arrangements for her to purchase a 22 rifle from a Manchester gun dealer. She'd also asked to join the pistol club, but George told her she wasn't a fit, because she was a terrible shot and supposedly easily irritated. Still, she was able to buy a Webley 45 and a Smith & Wesson 38 from other club members. And while Brady and Hinley's robbery plans never amounted to anything, they did find another hobby to enjoy together. Photography. Brady would take pictures of Hinley with her dog Puppet, and she'd occasionally take pictures of him, but most of their imagery would be considered explicit. Now in June 1935, Brady would move in with Hinley at her grandmother's house, and according to Hinley, Brady began to talk about committing the perfect murder in July of 1963. They would frequently discuss Mayor Levin's Compulsion, and Compulsion was released as a book in 1956, and made into a movie in 1959. The narrative presents a fictitious version of the Leopold and Loeb case in which two young men from affluent backgrounds try to commit the perfect murder of a 12-year-old boy and are spared the death penalty due to their age. And on July 12, 1963, Hinley and Brady moved from the theoretical to action. They would murder their first victim, 16-year-old Pauline Reed. The night Pauline disappeared, she was headed to the Railway Workers Social Club for a dance. 
She had originally intended to go with three of her friends, Pat, Linda, and Barbara, but their parents withdrew their consent at the last moment after finding out that alcohol would be served. Pauline made the decision to go alone. And Pauline might have been more trusting of Hinley since she would be recognized as the older sister of her classmate. So when Hinley offered Pauline a ride, she got into the truck. Hinley would ask for Pauline's help in looking for a glove that she had misplaced in Saddleworth Moor. After Pauline gave her okay, they drove there, with Brady riding along on his bike. Hinley told Pauline that Brady would help them with their search. Now Hinley and Brady would give different accounts of what happened next. Brady would say that Hinley was present and would participate in the murder. And Hinley would insist that she waited in the van while Brady went off with Pauline. But what happened was Pauline was murdered. Her neck was cut and she was sexually assaulted. But since no one had actually seen Pauline vanish, the authorities weren't able to track down any leads in relation to her disappearance. They questioned David Smith, a 15-year-old who was either her lover or her ex-boyfriend, but he'd be cleared of any participation. And that's where the leads would end, and the case would go cold. On November 23, 1963, John Kilbride, only 12 years old, would be the next to vanish. The police would be contacted by John's parents, Patrick and Sheila, when he failed to return home for supper. An estimated 700 statements would be taken by police, and 500 flyers would be printed. Approximately 2,000 volunteers would search abandoned buildings and grounds for John after he didn't return home for eight days. But they would find nothing. Keith Bennett, another 12-year-old boy, would be next. He would go missing on June 16, 1964. Jimmy Johnson, his stepfather, became a suspect and would be taken into custody four different times for interrogation in the two years that followed Bennett's disappearance. The detectives would search under their home floorboards, and after learning that the homes in their row were connected, they'd search the entire street. But again, nothing was found. In reality, both John and Keith had been picked up by Henley and Brady, taken to the moors where they were sexually assaulted and killed. Leslie Ann Downey, age 10, would be the fourth and youngest victim for the couple. On Boxing Day, she was taken from a fun fair, but she wouldn't be taken to the remote moors. This time, Henley took the young girl to their home, where she was photographed and filmed naked. She suffered from sexual assault and torture before being strangled to death. The next morning, they'd drive her body to the moors and would bury her in a shallow grave. And after Leslie was reported missing from the fair, another massive search would be conducted, but nobody would be able to locate her whereabouts or uncover any clues as to what had happened to her. On October 6, 1965, in the evening, Hinley took Brady to the Manchester Central Railway Station in order to locate a new victim. After a few minutes, Brady would come back with 17-year-old Edward Evans. They would drive to Brady and Hinley's home. Brady would eventually send Hinley to pick up her brother-in-law, David Smith. Now, Hinley's sister Maureen had married David Smith, who had multiple previous convictions, including actual bodily injury and housebreaking, and Hinley's family never approved of him. Myra was actually growing more concerned about Brady's closeness with Smith over the past year because she believed it jeopardized their safety. Smith had grown to be in awe of Brady. According to Lee from Medium.com, David was instructed to wait outside the home until someone signaled for him to enter. When that signal, a flashing light came, David knocked on the door. 
Brady would meet him in the kitchen, saying he could get the wine and asking if he had come for the miniature wine bottles. Smith would then be left alone in the kitchen, and this is how he would describe what followed next to police. I waited about a minute or two, then suddenly I heard a hell of a scream. It sounded like a woman, really high-pitched. Then the screams carried on, one after another really loud. Then I heard Myra shout, Dave, help him, very loud. When I ran in, I just stood inside the living room, and I saw a young lad. He was lying with his head and shoulders on the couch, and his legs were on the floor. He was facing upwards. Ian was standing over him, facing him, with his legs on either side of the young lad's legs. The lad was still screaming. Ian had a hatchet in his hand. He was holding it above his head, and he hit the lad on the left side of his head with the hatchet. I heard the blow. It was a terrible hard blow. It sounded horrible. David saw Brady strike Edward about 14 times with a hatchet before strangling him with an electrical cable. Brady would hurt his ankle during the struggle and would be unable to lift Edward's body. So Edward was left in the spare bedroom after they, and we're not sure exactly who was involved in this, wrapped him in a plastic sheet because David was unable to carry him to the car by himself. David had promised to return in the morning to assist in moving Edward's body to the moor, and he promised to bring his baby's stroller. He left it around three in the morning, but when he got home, he would violently throw up and then tell Maureen, his wife, everything that happened at her sister's house. At around six in the morning, David, fearing Brady was monitoring him, armed himself with a bread knife and a screwdriver and made his way to a phone box to call the police. Police would pick him up and bring him to Hyde Police Station, where he would tell authorities what he had witnessed. Following David's confession, Superintendent Bob Talbot and a detective sergeant would go to Hindley's home. They would find Brady on the couch, writing to his work about his ankle injury. Hindley consented to the police searching her home, denying that any violence had occurred the night before. Superintendent Talbot would ask for a key when he arrived at their extra bedroom, which was locked only to be told by Hinley that she had left the key at work. Talbot would offer to drive her so she could retrieve the key, and it was at this point that Brady told Hinley to turn it over. Edward's body would be discovered inside the room wrapped in plastic. Brady would state that he and Edward got into a row and the situation got out of hand. But Brady would immediately be arrested. And on October 11th, Hinley would be arrested for accessory to the murder of Edward Evans. The entire house would be searched by police again. Brady and Hindley were connected to the disappearance when they discovered an exercise book with the name John Kilbride on the front. They began to believe Brady and Hindley were connected to the disappearances of other young people. And even though police had not discovered any suitcases in their home, David Smith had informed them that Brady had asked him to return any incriminating material before packing it into suitcases. Brady, according to David, had a thing about railway stations, so police started to look through the surrounding stations. And suitcases were discovered by police in the left luggage office at Manchester Central Railway Station. They also discovered inside one of Hindley's prayer books a claim ticket for the luggage. And inside the suitcase, they would discover a variety of outfits, notes, photos, negatives, and a cassette recording. Nine of the negatives and photos featured Leslie Downey in explicit settings. 
and the 16-minute tape recording also featured Leslie screaming, shouting, and pleading to be returned to her mother. There were two more voices, a man and a woman, both of them threatening the child. These adult voices were recognized by police to be those of Ian Brady and Myra Hinley. However, Anne Downey's help was required to recognize her child's voice. And so she had to listen to her daughter in the final moments of her life, screaming in terror. Another 12-year-old girl, Patricia, who had been taken to Saddleworth Moor by Brady and Hinley on multiple occasions, was approached by officers asking questions at nearby homes. And she was able to tell police some of the couple's favorite locations along the A635 road. Police would search the area right away. And on October 16th, they discover an arm bone sticking out of the peat. At first, they thought it belonged to John Kilbride, but the next day, it was determined to be Leslie Ann Downey. Her mother was able to identify her and the clothing that had been buried in the grave. Following the discovery of Leslie, the police searched the areas shown in the photos and asked residents for assistance in locating any more information. This resulted in the October 21st discovery of John Kilbride's partially decomposed body. His clothing allowed for his identification. Brady and Hindley were formally charged with Leslie's murder that very same day. Authorities suspected that Hindley and Brady were connected to even more disappearances in and around Manchester. But when November arrived, they had to suspend their search of the moors. Investigators would bring Hindley's dog Puppet to a veterinary specialist to get an age estimate for the photos taken at Saddleworth Moor. Puppet would be put under general anesthesia by the surgeon, and unfortunately would never wake up from the procedure. Hindley would accuse the police of murdering her dog, and it would be the only time they ever saw her have an emotional reaction. When Hindley and Brady were put on trial on April 19, 1966, they'd enter a plea of not guilty to every charge. They persisted in trying to pin the killings on David Smith during the trial, a cowardly move that did nothing but increase the public's contempt for them. They showed no regret for their crimes or sympathy for the families of their victims at any point during the trial. Both Brady and Hindley appeared cold and callous. On May 6, following a little more than two hours of deliberation, the jury would convict Brady of all three murders and Hindley guilty of killing Downey and Evans. The judge gave them the only possible sentence, since the death penalty had been abolished about six months earlier, life in prison. Brady would receive three consecutive life sentences, while Hindley received two life sentences plus an additional seven years for harboring Brady while knowing that he had killed Kilbride. While incarcerated, Hindley would make the first of two trips to help police search the moor on December 16, 1986. On December 19, David Smith, who was 38 at the time, would assist police in identifying other areas to explore. In March 1987, Hindley would make her second visit. Though she was unable to discover any of the missing graves, Hindley would tell police that the two places they were focusing their search on, Hograin and Helen Brown Knoll, were accurate. Though interest in the search declined over the following few months, Hindley's tips had directed efforts towards particular locations. Following over a hundred days of searching, they would finally discover Patricia Reed's body on July 1st, three feet below the surface and 90 yards from the location where Downey's body had been found. They would never find Keith Bennett's body. 
Brady would be sent to Durham prison after his conviction and requested to be kept mostly in solitary confinement. He'd be declared a psychopath in November 1985 and transferred to the high-security Park Lane Hospital. He made it plain that he had no desire to ever be released. Brady would submit an application to be sent back to prison in 2012, stating that he wanted to starve to death. In June of the following year, he stated at a mental health tribunal that he had a personality disorder rather than paranoid schizophrenia, as his doctors had previously alleged. Brady continues to suffer from a mental disorder, which is of a nature and degree which makes it appropriate for him to continue receiving medical treatment, the judge would say when rejecting his application. Brady would die from restrictive pulmonary disease at Ashworth Hospital on May 15, 2017, following end-of-life treatment. An inquest conducted determined that his hunger strike was not a contributing role in his death and that he had died of natural causes. Soon after the trial, Hindley would file an unsuccessful appeal against her conviction. She and Brady would have a letter correspondence up until 1971, when she would end their relationship, although the two would keep in touch intermittently for a few more months. Hindley, on November 15, 2002, would pass away in West Suffolk Hospital from bronchial pneumonia, and David Smith would be reviled by the people of Manchester because he had made money off of the killings and publicity. Maureen, who was eight months pregnant during the trial, was attacked in her building's elevator. The couple would frequently receive hate mail, and their home would be vandalized. Maureen would claim she was unable to let her children out of her sight when they were little. Smith would be given a three-year prison sentence in 1969 for stabbing another man during a brawl. An attack, he said, was brought on by the mistreatment he experienced since the trial. And the pair would divorce in 1973. And that will bring us to the end of this episode. As we conclude our exploration of the Moores murders, we're left with a profound sense of sorrow for the innocent lives lost, and the families forever scarred by the actions of Ian Brady and Myra Hindley. Their descent into depravity, fueled by a twisted fascination with violence and a complete lack of empathy, defies comprehension. From their initial meeting to the meticulous planning and execution of their heinous crimes, Brady and Hindley demonstrated a chilling level of premeditation and ruthlessness. Despite their conviction and imprisonment, the legacy of the Moore murders continues to haunt. The unanswered questions surrounding the whereabouts of Keith Bennett's body serve as a poignant reminder of the lingering pain and uncertainty faced by the families of the victims. The scars left by Brady and Hindley's atrocities run deep, a testament to the enduring impact of their evil deeds. I want to thank you for listening to this episode. If you've enjoyed it, please remember to review, rate, subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. You can follow us on social media, on Instagram at Historical True Crime Pod or Facebook at Historical True Crime Podcast. You can also get in touch with us by email at historicaltruecrimepod at gmail.com. We'll see you next week for another dark and notorious case from history. We'll see you then.